All right. What's up, guys? Jake, you want this water? There you go, buddy. Oh, look at that. A wrestler from Iowa who can throw a water bottle. It's amazing. Uh, the reason I was laughing so hard right before our second part of worship is Caleb and the guys stole my Bible. <laughs> that would be hilarious, like if you had actually hit it good. So I was like turned around to grab it, and I can't find it. And it, they hit it. That'd been, what, what would you have done if I couldn't find it? I'm just like, guys, I have no idea. Can't do this. I'm sorry. Go home. <laughs> no salt tonight. Don't have my Bible. <laughs> been funny. Good joke, Caleb. Guys, three of my favorite people on earth are here. Hey, Jack, he's pointing at me. Hey, buddy. Hi. Hey, Isla. They surprised me right before the service started. They walked in, and there's Natalie. Hey, Nat. Love you. So that's great. So if you hear crying, it's probably them. One of the three. It could be any of the three. No. <laughs> All right, if you got a Bible, Isaiah is where we're going to be at tonight. We are starting a new series. So, Caleb, had you stolen my Bible and actually hit it good, and I would have been embarrassed. That would not have been the only time I was embarrassed preaching. So, tonight I'm going to tell you part two of the, the wasp story. So, if you're at the kickoff, I told part one of the wasp story. Part two, on the same day, it became one of the most unforgettable days of my life. Because wasps, if you weren't here at the kickoff... Thousands of wasps infested our house. I got stung, and then I went to this retreat to teach at this freshman retreat in Ames. So I'm at this retreat, Salt Company retreat. We go to bed, and we're in these just like horrible cabins. Literally one of the worst like cabins structures. They should be torn down if they're not already ever. Just terrible, terrible cabins. So I get in there. I'm the first one in there. I didn't know this and I didn't mean to be selfish, but I totally took the only outlet there. It is 90 degrees out. So I took the only outlet in the whole cabin for a fan, set it right next to my, fan, my head. No AC, horrible. I fall asleep. Now the thing about these cabins is there's no windows. There's just screens there. So no windows, just screens, which in theory is like really helpful if it's just to like let a breeze in. But when it rains, not helpful at all. So it's three in the morning. I wake up and I just feel like, I'm like, water is hitting me. And there's just rain coming through the window, coming through the screen, just splattering me. And I just wake up and I'm getting rained on. And then the rain starts to pick up even more and pick up even more. And it just becomes like this heavy torrential downpour. And it's just like, and I'm getting soaked, like sleeping bag over me. But then thunder starts happening. And I love thunderstorms, but I have never in my life been in a thunderstorm like this. So we're in this cabin, and it was the loudest, most powerful thunderstorm I have ever been in my life. It is directly over our heads. It's pouring raining. Hey, Jack, I heard you say dada. Love you, man. We'll play football tomorrow, buddy. We will. He can play football now. It's awesome. It's so fun. He's like one and a half. So thunder. It's just like, you know, it's just, that's my impression of thunder, just, and it is so terrifying and close and loud. It is just shaking these cabins, like literally physically shaking these old wooden cabins where it's just like, It's what it's doing. 
doing? It's doing. And these cabins are physically shaking. I have never been in a thunderstorm that physically shakes a building. And it is just like this for three hours, just rain coming through the screen, just like sprinkling on me, like not sprinkling. It was pouring on me, but like a sprinkler. That's what I had in my mind. Just sprinkler, like sideways rain coming in through the screen and just all night for three, like from three in the morning till six, just So what's happening. It was terrible. Maddie, it was awful. I'm serious. It really was. So I wake up in the morning. I have to teach at 9 a.m. I have not slept at all that night. We went to bed probably at one because we stayed up playing games. I wake up at three to this thunderstorm. I'm going to trip on these papers. I don't know how you trip on papers, but I'm just feeling I might. I'm going to move those. Hopefully that doesn't ruin Jake's music here after this. I wake up or just get out of bed because I'd been awake. And now the wasp sting from on my eyebrow has swollen up and is huge. I've been awake for the last three hours in this thunderstorm. And I have horrible seasonal allergies about the second week of September, which is when this is. Because I, so I have allergies, I have nasal polyps, this whole thing that I've had since third grade. I'm gonna get them taken care of at some point, I know. And so I'm just a mess. I go into the bathroom and these guys are like, oh my goodness, you've been in a fight because my eyes are swollen, they're bloodshot. I sound horrible, I look horrible. I go up to teach, I try to explain it, but I just look absolutely awful. So that is part two, the most unforgettable thunderstorm of my life. Now, the reason why I tell you this story is that thunder, I will never forget that thunder cracking and just the powerful, terrifying experience that literally shook this cabin. Now, the reason why I want to describe the thunder in that way is because, so last month I was at James Jay's Homestyle Cooking. So I'm at Jay's, I'm meeting with this guy and he's a great guy. He's asking me a lot of questions about God and faith. And at one point he asked me this. He says, hey, Stephen, if you could describe God in one word, what word would you use? If you could only describe God in one word, what word would you choose to describe who God is? Think about that for a second. What word would you use? So I looked at him, I gave him an answer, and I'll tell you my, what my answer was in a minute. But the reason I gave him the answer I gave is because there's one word that when it is used to describe God is repeated three times, and the ones saying it and repeating it three times, it says that their voice, these angels are saying it, is so loud and so powerful that it is like thunder that is shaking the foundations of the temple. When they're saying this word three times, just over and over again, it's so powerful and so booming that it's just shaking physically the temple. And so the word I told him was the word holy. Holy is the word that I would use if I could only have one word to describe God. It's the word holy. Now, that is what we're going to talk about tonight. We are going to start our series in Isaiah, and we're going to be taking the next nine weeks asking who is God? What is an accurate picture of who God is? And to answer that, to start, we have to first and foremost understand holy. This word that when it's used to describe God is repeated three times, and these angels thought it was such a big deal to know about the holiness of God that it thundered out of them. So that's where we're starting. We're taking the next nine weeks, like I said, to ask who is God, to get an accurate picture of who he is. And the reason we're doing that is there is a theologian named R.C. Sproul, who has now passed away, but he wrote a book a while back called The Holiness of God. It's a great book. 
And in it, he said, how you understand the person and character of God the Father impacts every aspect of your life. How you understand who God is impacts every aspect of your life. So if you have a misunderstanding of who God is, if the picture that comes to your mind is anything less than how the Bible would present him, then that's going to negatively impact your life in some way. But the more that you can understand the person and character of God, more in line with how the Bible presents him, the more you're going to be able to live the purpose that God created you for and to live according to the design he has for your life, which will bring you joy and him glory. So we're taking nine weeks to look at these nine passages in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who was prophesying in around 700 BC in Israel and in Judah. Uh, he would go and he'd give warnings and messages from God, and he wrote down one of the largest books of the Old Testament that is the second most quoted book in the New Testament, a super foundational book in our uh, Christian faith. So we're going to take nine weeks to look at nine passages and see how Isaiah describes both who God is and what matters to him. And the more that we can see that, the more our lives will begin to be in line with how God created us to live. So tonight we're starting with the holiness of God. The holiness of God, the only attribute that's repeated about God three times. And it was so important to these angels that they thundered it in such a way that it shook the temple. So if you got a Bible, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, it's almost in the middle of your Bible. And we're going to be in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. What does it mean that God is holy? All right, I'm going to read the first four verses. We'll talk about it for most of the sermon. It talks about the holiness of God. Then we'll look at verses 5 through 8, which is Isaiah's response. So here's verses 1 through 4. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah, this prophet of God, this is what we refer to as his commissioning scene. He has this vision of who God is. And it starts out with verse one, where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So that's significant. So in Judah, Uzziah was king and he became king when he was 16 years old and he reigned for 52 years, 52 years. And at the end of his reign in 2 Chronicles 26, it, the assessment of him was he was a good king. In 2 Chronicles 26, God looks at his kingdom and how he led and says, hey, you led according, according to my ways. You were a faithful, good king. Uzziah was a great leader. He was a great king, and he was the king for 52 years. Now picture the stability that a nation would feel if they had a good leader for 52 years. Like imagine just the stability and the security, One, a leader who was just good and followed God. Like he brought so much stability and, and direction to this nation. His death would have brought tremendous uncertainty for this nation. 
I mean, there were entire generations that only knew him as king. Like, I was thinking about my dad when Isla was born. My dad was 53. So my dad, you know, if Uzziah was king, when he was born, he would have been one. And then I've been born, then Isla would have been born. And by the time Isla had been born, the three of us, my dad, me, and Isla would have only known Uzziah. Like, imagine just the, the stability, the familiarity that a king who had reigned for 52 years in a way that honored God would bring to a nation. And on the flip side, the instability that that nation would feel as he died. So he dies, and Isaiah then prays to God. And as he's praying, as he's in this uncertain moment in this nation, he has a vision. And here's what he sees. He sees this, verse 1. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. He's praying, he has this vision. It's like, yes, the the throne of Judah might be empty, but the throne of heaven is filled. It's filled with the Lord on his throne, high and lofty, and just this, this train of his robe is filling the temple. It's like, yeah, your king of 52 years might be dead, but the true king of the universe is on his throne. So Isaiah sees him, and around his throne are these angelic creatures, these seraphim. It says this, verse 2, seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. So you got these angelic creatures, these seraphims that are, some are flying, some are standing, and they're just surrounding this throne. And they have these, I mean, they are crazy looking creatures, six wings, two to shield their face from the glory of God, two to cover their feet, which just represented their creaturely, creature, creatureness, creatureliness, creatureliness, yes, creatureliness, woo, got it. They covered that out of reverence for God. And then two, they're just flying. And as they're surrounding the throne of God, here's what they are proclaiming to one another. Verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And as they're saying this, like I said, verse four, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. The temple was filled with smoke. I imagine that scene. Isaiah is praying and is just swept up into this vision. The throne of Judah is empty, but he sees the throne of heaven filled. And around the throne of heaven are just these massive, incredible angelic creatures with just these booming, thundering voices. It's just, you know, holy, holy, holy. It's just like Isaiah's ears are ringing. It's like making his chest pound is just this terrifying experience of hearing these creatures yell, holy. It's just this thunder. It wasn't just like this worship band that's singing like, holy, holy, holy. It's like, it's incredible. You, I, I didn't practice any of my thunder impressions. Keep working on it, Emma. Is that what you're saying? Okay, fine. Whatever, I'll work on my thunder. That's, that's the worst one yet. They're just thundering and booming, and it's this incredible experience that Isaiah is swept up into as these creatures are flying, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's incredible. 
Now, here's the deal. When, when the Hebrew wants to emphasize a word, it's unlike how we emphasize a word in English. When we want to emphasize a word, we add like an adjective to that word. So we don't just say like he's fast, but we say he's lightning fast. In Hebrew, if they want to emphasize a word, they say more like he's not just fast, but he's fast, fast. They repeat it. So when they're saying God is holy, they're saying, hey, God, he's not just holy. He's, and he's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Like he is really holy. He is the holiest of holies. And this is the only attribute, the only descriptive word of God that's repeated three times. That's why in J's, I said the word that I would use is holy. God is holy. Now, what does it mean that God is holy? If that's the one word that is uh, repeated three times, if it's the one word that these angels thought was so important for us to get that they thundered it, what does it mean? What does it mean that God is holy? And no, Justin Bieber did not get it right, though I love him to death. He's the best. What does holy mean? Okay, R.C. Sproul in his book, Holiness of God, he defines it this way, and it's, it's a big word, but stick with me. He says, when the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, it's primarily speaking about his transcendence and that he's separate, that he's transcendent and separate. All right, what does that mean? Well, first that he's separate. God is separate from creation. In all the universe, there's really just two categories. There is creator and creation. He is separate. God being holy means that he is separate and other than creation. Two categories. There's creator and then everything else is creation. God is separate. But he's not just separate, he's transcendent. He's transcendently separate. What does transcendent mean? Transcendent means that he's above, that he is above. So he's not just separate from creation, but he's also above creation. God being holy is that he is separate from creation and above it. And when it talks about him being above it, it means that he is over it all. He is supremely in charge of it all. He is the ruler of it, of it all. That there is an infinite distance between creation and creator. He is the one who is separate from creation and over creation. He is transcendently separate. But not just that, he is, he's pure. His holiness also brings to mind his purity, that there is no evil or wickedness found in him. That he is morally good, perfectly good. It brings to mind that he is infinite. He's infinite in knowledge. He's infinite in power. That at the word of his voice, the sound of his voice, he can bring entire galaxies into existence. He can create light and time and everything. He's infinite in knowledge. He's infinite in power. So God is trans transcendent. He is separate. He is infinite. He is holy. He is good. So where do we see this in the text? Well, you see that in that first part, verse 1. Again, it says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. God is the creator. And as creator, he has supreme rule over everything. He is on the throne he is sovereign. There is not a square inch of all of creation that God is not the Lord of. He is over all of it, and everything in creation is under his rule. Every square inch. 
If there's only two categories, creator and creation, and he is over it and he is on the throne over it, then everything in category two is under his control and under his rule. He's supreme. And if everything in category two is under his control, that includes my life. That every aspect of my life is also under his lordship. Everything about who I am, every decision I make, every thought I have, every act of obedience or disobedience, everything I do, every aspect of my life is under the lordship of God, which leaves us with two choices. We can either submit to the lordship of the transcendently separate, I did that opposite, the separate transcendent one, or we can reject his lordship. Not only is he sovereign, but he's glorious. Look again at those seraphim. So think about this. They had six wings. They are created beings. They're pure. They're angels, but they're created still. They're still in category two. But think about this. God knew that they would be in the throne room with him. And so he gave them not just two wings to fly, not just four wings so that they could cover their feet, but six wings so that they could cover their face to shield them from the glory of God. These pure angelic beings, not even them can gaze at the glory of God. They have to shield their face from his glory. These are beings that if we saw them, we would be in terror of them. In Luke 1, Zechariah, Jesus' uncle, he is approached by an angel and it says that he was filled with terror and overwhelmed with fear. He sees an angel and is overwhelmed with fear. These angels, their, their voice is so loud that it is shaking the foundations of the temple. Should I do the thunder again, Emma? Just These majestic, glorious beings, not even they can gaze at the glory of God. God in his wisdom created them with not two, not four, but six wings so that they could shield themselves from his glory. Not even they could gaze upon it. Not only that, but in what they're saying, not only is his glory in his presence, but his glory is in the whole earth. Verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. God is not only Lord of every square inch of the world, but his glory is seen in every square inch of the created world. Psalms, 1, or Psalms 19, 1 and 2 says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Everything in creation screams glory. Everything. At the voice of his word, he created light. He created galaxies. He created molecules. He created everything. And all of it is a reflection of his glory. This is maybe a silly example, but Job in verse, uh, I think it's in chapter 39, he talks about how God is aware of when a deer gives birth. And I was thinking about that. Like there are so many deer in this world, like literally populations in Iowa, deer, they are overwhelming and we need to kill them. <laughs> I'm sorry if you don't like hunting. I think it's pretty fun, but not a hill I want to die on. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry if I offended you. But there's a lot of deer and they're overpopulated. And God says that he knows when a deer gives birth. There are so many deer that are born and die and no human has ever seen them. And it's like, God just did all that process 
Because he can. God brings water into the desert where no human is. That's what Job 39 also talks about. No human's there. No one's going to see it that remembers it, but he still brings water to the desert and waters the plants that are there. It feels like a waste of time. Why do you do Well, he can. He's infinite in power and knowledge. He knows everything. He created everything, and everything in creation screams of his glory. Every inch of our world is under his lordship. And every inch of our world is a reflection of his glory. Which also means that if everything in category two is in his lordship and under his lordship, and that includes you, and if everything in category two is a reflection of his glory, you know what that also includes? It includes you. Even you are a reflection of God's glory. He says in Genesis 1.27 that he created humanity in his glory. That every human, there are 8 billion of us walking around and we are image bearers. We are a reflection of the glory of God. All of this leads Isaiah in chapter 40 to write this. He reflects on, on the glory of God, his holiness, and here's what he says as he brings it all together. I'm going to read a pretty good chunk of chapter 40 here, starting in verse 18. You can just listen, or if you want to turn there, you can. But here's what he, what he says as he's reflecting on the holiness of God. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts? A metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal. That will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They're barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint, and he strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. God is holy. He's not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. 
He is separate from all of creation. He is above all of creation. He is infinite in power. He is infinite in knowledge. Everything in creation is under his lordship. Everything in creation is a reflection of his glory. He is supremely majestic. His glory is a consuming brilliance. He is holy. How does Isaiah respond to this? As Isaiah is seeing this, as he is getting a glimpse of God's glory, as he is in the midst of this thunderous worship session, how does he respond? What's Isaiah's response? Look at verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Isaiah, in response to this vision, says, Woe is me! Cursed is me! I'm ruined! I'm undone! And it's interesting, he's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God and he says, My lips are unclean and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. When Isaiah sees the full glory of God, when he catches a glimpse of his holiness, it floors him. He drops to the floor and is just, woe is me, I am ruined. Why? What is, what, what is producing this response in Isaiah? Well, one of the things is the context of this story. So think back, it said King Uzziah had just died. Now, I said King Uzziah was, for the most part, a good king. At the end of his life, the assessment was he was a good king. But in the very end of his life, he made a really big mistake. Uzziah had set up all of these new economic structures, had built, rebuilt the army of Israel, had won battles, was a great king. But in the end, it says in his arrogance, he went and grabbed incense and went into the temple, into the presence of God to burn it. As these eight priests are trying to stop him from going into the presence of God, he goes in and it ruins him. He's immediately afflicted with leprosy. And for the rest of his life, which was short after that, he is quarantined with this skin disease that's super contagious. So on the entire nation's mind is the fact that their king had just entered the presence of God and it ruined him. King Uzziah had entered the presence of God just before this story and it completely ruined him and he died in shame. So that's on Isaiah's mind and he is caught up in the presence of God and he immediately is like, oh no, I am ruined. But what is so ruining about the presence of God? As I said, God is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely glorious, which means he's like the sun. He is a good thing, but get too close and it will consume you. Why? Because we are people that are people of impurity, people of brokenness, people that have sin in our life who are not God. And God as the perfect holy one cannot be in the presence of sin. And that becomes a huge problem for you and I. Because we all know one thing. There's sin in my life. There are ways that I've messed up. And and for Isaiah, when he is in the presence of God, he becomes so aware of just how holy God God is. 
which then makes him aware of just how broken he is as a person. As he becomes more aware of the holiness of God, it makes him more aware of his brokenness. And all he could say is, woe is me, I'm ruined. When you become more and more aware of the holiness of God, it will move you to wonder and worship, but it will also make you equally more and more aware of just how broken you are, just how stuck in category two you are, just how much of part of creation you are. The more aware you become of just how big God is, it makes you more aware of just how broken you are. So Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined. But unlike King Uzziah, God didn't ruin him. Look at verse 6. Instead, Isaiah had an experience of God's grace. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. The thing that makes it so dangerous for us to be in the presence of God is our sin. And God, in an act of grace, sends this angel, sends this seraphim to remove Isaiah's sin from him. I mean, think about this. This, this crazy creature is coming to him, grabs this glowing coal. He even uses tongs to grab it. Even the angel can't touch it. And he's coming at Isaiah with this glowing coal, this fiery coal, touches his lips. The very thing that Isaiah had just said is so unclean. And it, is a, it brings atonement, it brings cleansing, it removes his iniquity and his sin. Isaiah becomes more aware of God's holiness, which makes him more aware of his own brokenness, but in the middle of that receives grace. And when that happened, then he hears this, verse eight, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send, who will go for us? He said, here I am, send me. When you experience the holiness of God and realize your brokenness before him, but then experience the tremendous grace from God, it will move you to live for him. But how? How could Isaiah receive this atonement? How could Isaiah receive this burning coal and not be consumed by it? How could Isaiah be in the presence of God and not be consumed by it? Ultimately, because God brought Jesus, who was consumed by the fiery cup of his wrath, Jesus lost the presence of God so that we could gain it. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus lost the presence of his father so that we could have the hope of one day seeing his glory and not be consumed by it. That we could receive grace for the sin and iniquity that plagues us and prevents us from entering the presence of God. Jesus was consumed by the fire of God so that we could be healed and cleansed by it. And have the hope that one day we will see God's glory and we won't be filled with terror, but instead we will be filled with wonder and worship. Is this how you picture God? Are you aware of his holiness? Has it made you aware of your own brokenness? And has that led you to a place not of terror, but instead gratitude and a deep appreciation for the grace that we've received in Christ? How you understand the person and character of God the Father will shape every aspect of your life. Do you see him as holy? Do you see him as holy, holy, holy? As infinite, 
as powerful as knowing everything and as loving and gracious. God is holy. How you see him will shape every aspect of your life. Let's pray. God, you are incomprehensible. We don't even have words that can fully capture or help us to even articulate who you are and the kind of God you are. But God, I pray that as we seek to know you, that we would see with greater clarity your holiness, that we would see greater clarity the kind of God that you are, and that we would see the kind of things that are important to you. And God, that as we have a picture of you, it would shape every aspect of our life. That we would be like Isaiah, who experienced your grace after seeing a glimpse of your holiness and said, have my life. I'll go, here I am. God, help us to be people who live with an awareness of your holiness. Help us be people who are shaped by your holiness. Help us be people who pursue holiness because of the grace that we've received in Christ and because you are holy. God, I pray that your holiness would be the thing that we come to know and understand and every aspect of our life is changed by it. And that as we become more aware of your holiness, it would make us more aware of our brokenness, but in the midst of that, that we would see just how beautiful grace is. Just how beautiful it is that Christ would die for us, that his blood would make atonement for our sin. God, I pray that that would make us a ministry of humility, of gratitude. God, that we'd say anyone is welcome here because all of us are desperate for grace. God, that we would see your perfection. And when we are convinced of the grace we've received of it, that we'd actually be able to be real about the crap in our life and begin to get help with it. God, help us to be people who are convinced you are a holy God. God, destroy the caricatures that are in our mind of who you are. Help us to see you truly and let our lives be shaped in response to that. Amen.